interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Charles Blahaus. Charles is a senior researcher at George Mason University's Mercatus Center and a public trustee for Social Security and Medicare. He also served as deputy director of President George W. Bush's National Economic Council and before that as executive director of the president's bipartisan Social Security Commission. Charles is also the author of the book Social Security, The Unfinished Work, which I highly recommend if you want to understand today's social security debate. One of the things that I found most striking about the book is that Charles combines two traits that are almost never go together in this field. First, he thoroughly understands Social Security, and second, he can explain it clearly to laymen. So that's why I wanted to have him on to give us a primer on Social Security, how it works today, and what its future holds. Charles, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you for having me. What is Social Security? Well, Social Security is a federal program that has been with us uh, since the days of uh, President Franklin Roosevelt. And it primarily provides uh, retirement benefits, although it also provides uh, disability benefits, benefits to widows and widowers, and some other benefits for uh, surviving dependents like uh, surviving dependent children and the like. Uh, it is basically a program that people pay into throughout their working careers via a 12.4% tax on their wages. And the payment of that tax over their lifetimes uh, gives them entitlement to a benefit uh, if they become eligible uh, because they become disabled or because they hit retirement age. What are the goals for the program? Why was it created? And let me know if those goals have changed over time. Well, that's actually a very insightful question because I would say that the goals in many ways have changed over time. Uh, I think many people today think of Social Security primarily as a retirement program, a retirement income program. Uh, it's like, uh, in, in many people's minds, it's the equivalent of a national pension program. They, they think of themselves as putting aside money during their working years, uh, albeit they're handing it over to the government, uh, and then they're going to have uh, uh, basically a stream of income to retire on later on. Uh, and, and most people anticipate withdrawing Social Security benefits uh, at one time in their lives. Now, that's actually a little bit different from um, the way it was when it was first constituted. If you actually go back and read the report of the Committee on Economic Security that the FDR established to make uh, recommendations for this program, uh, they had less ambitious goals for Social Security. Uh, they were very concerned about uh, the depression phenomenon of uh, uh, the difficulty of, of uh, people of advanced age uh, finding work. Uh, they were trying, they were very skeptical that Americans in their 60s and beyond would be able to uh, uh, rejoin the workforce given economic conditions. Uh, and so they wanted to give them uh, a source of income largely to keep them out of the ranks of people competing for scarce jobs. And so if you read that report, uh, this discussion of old age benefits is, is very much wrapped into this question of how to deal with, deal with persistent unemployment. And back then, the, uh, there was no disability component to Social Security. 
the program was established so that you could withdraw uh, retirement benefits at age 65. Uh, and uh, back then, people didn't live nearly as long, and so uh, it, it was uh, the, the term insurance was applied to it, old age insurance. It was thought of as something that if you lived to this age and you had a need, then you would draw upon this, this income insurance, whereas today, I think the, the predominant supposition is that it's not really insurance, that, that pretty much uh, most people uh, are going to be withdrawing benefits from this program at uh, uh, one time or another. And on average... What do most people take home, say, a month from Social Security? Well, a typical benefit, if you were to retire at the normal retirement age, and if you were a so-called medium wage earner retiring this year, uh, your typical benefit would be around $19,000 a year. So I guess what, in monthly terms, what is that? It's about uh, $1,600, that's about right, isn't it? Yeah, it's about between sixteen hundred and seventeen hundred uh, a month. Um, and of course, that's that's uh, uh, many people would point out that that is a, a modest uh, benefit, uh, but um, you know it, it reflects, I think, for older Americans, a fairly reasonable return on what they put into the program. Uh, younger Americans, unfortunately, can look forward to much lower returns from the program. Um, yeah, I definitely want to come back to that, but. Just to get more of the structure, a little more of the structure of the program, um, you mentioned it's funded by a payroll tax of 12.4%. That's half paid by nominally by the employer, half by the employee. But uh, I think all come, economists agree comes out of the employee's paycheck ultimately. Um, but I think a lot of people picture that money being taken out and kind of sent off to Washington to be saved and invested, set aside at least for when they retire. But that's not actually what happens. You're right. That's not actually what happens. And this is very important because uh, the, the program from the beginning was uh, set up as a, uh, basically as a pay-as-you-go system. That actually isn't what FDR wanted. FDR originally wanted a funded system. Uh, he did want a system in which people's contributions were, in a sense, set aside for their own retirement. And each generation was, in a sense, paying for their own benefits. Uh, that was one of the few legislative battles that he lost. Uh, Congress, many members of Congress are very concerned about uh, the federal government managing and investing uh, enormous uh, sums of money uh, along those lines. And so they, they, um, they, they changed the structure of the program uh, so that it would be pay-as-you-go. Basically, they, the first uh, people who retired onto Social Security uh, did not really finance their own benefits. Their benefits were paid for from the payroll taxes of the generation that followed them. Uh, and then that generation's benefits were paid for from the taxes of the following generation, and so on and so on down the line. So when workers are today paying Social Security taxes, that money is basically going right out the door to pay benefits to uh, current beneficiaries. And how much, uh, let's r r take last year, how much overall did Social Security cost in term to the taxpayer? Uh, it's over $800 billion dollars. Uh, a year right now. It's uh, the projection for this year. Uh, we're expecting about $875 billion of benefit payments. So this is the largest single uh, program, the largest single category of spending that the, um, the federal government is engaged in. Now, one element of the way that Social Security is financed that I think baffles a lot of people is that there's a cap on the tax. So it's 12.4%, but only on, I think, the first 100000 and change that you earn that strikes people as baffling because it seems that 
uh, why are we giving such a, a break to the to the people who are very wealthy? Can you explain the the logic and thinking behind the cap on taxing? Sure. Uh, the the original idea behind Social Security was that it would provide a floor of income protection. Uh, and, and basically, FDR did not want a welfare program. He, he wanted a program where everyone was paying in, everyone was getting a benefit, and everyone's benefit was in some way linked to the, to the amount of uh, their own earnings that had been subject to the Social Security tax. So basically, the more taxes you put into the program, the bigger the benefit you would get. Now, the, the rate of return is more generous on the low-income end, and, and the returns are less generous on the high-income end. Uh, but but uh, but basically every contribution or at least every uh, dollar of earnings that is subject to the tax is tracked and credited towards benefits. So uh, the idea behind the cap is that beyond a certain level of taxation, wealthy people don't really need additional benefits uh, because benefits and contributions are linked. Uh, the higher that wage cap would be, uh, the higher uh, the benefits would be on the higher income end, and and you start to lose efficiency. Uh, at the top end, there's not much uh, of a reason to uh, basically force uh, higher-income people to pay additional taxes, uh, only to earn additional benefits that they don't really need. Um, well, that, just as an aside, one of the things that's mystified me a little bit about the debate over Social Security initially is that there's a real effort to do everything within their power to portray it not as a welfare program and to structure it so that it isn't seen as a welfare program. And yet, I think it was Title One. Uh, of Social Security, which was an outright Social Security welfare program. Am I wrong about that or missing something? No, I, I don't. It's funny because, right, what what, uh, what most people think of Social Security as being today is Title II. Title II of the original Social Security Act is basically the uh, old age uh, uh, insurance system uh, eventually became the old age survivors and disability insurance system. And, and that is the element of the program that has grown enormously over the years. That is the element of the program that FDR did not want to be confused with welfare or interpreted as welfare. Uh, but yes, there are many other titles of the Social Security Act that dealt with uh, other forms of, uh, I guess the, the term of art at the time was relief, uh, relief to individuals who were, who were in need. And um, it's just that this particular part of the program is the part that uh, grew uh, in the subsequent decades. So I want to turn then to the financial shape of the program, um, both now and as we look into the future. And let me put the question this way. Is there a social security crisis? I would say there is. I think it's gone from being a problem to a crisis. Uh, I, I think not everyone would universally agree with that. Uh, but I, my own view is that we are now at the point where the size of the problem is large enough and severe enough that the chances of it ever being successfully solved in a way that preserves Social Security's historical structure um, are dropping very dramatically. And, and I would certainly, and, and the consequences of that economically and in terms of the uh, equity of the treatment of uh, participants, the equity in the treatment of participants, I think are severe enough that it, that it justifies using the term crisis at this point. So explain those problems a little bit. Well, I would say the, fir the first problem, the, the, the underlying problem driving everything else is just program costs are rising, and they're rising very dramatically. Um, today, it costs, as we said earlier, about $875 billion to uh, pay benefits this year. That, that basically amounts to 
of all of the uh, taxable earnings earned by American workers this year. And the costs of the program are rising much faster than uh, taxpayers' workers' earnings can keep pace with, which means that it's going to swallow up a larger and larger share of workers' earnings going forward. The projections are that by the uh, mid-2030s, the program is on a course to absorb about 17 cents uh, of each taxable dollar American workers earn. So that's, that's basically one out of every six dollars. Um, and that's serious enough. Uh, of course, Medicare is, is doing something uh, similar. Uh, you put those two programs together, by the mid-2030s, you're looking at a situation where you're going to need one out of every three dollars American workers earn to support two federal programs alone. And uh, so that, that's the underlying driver of the uh, of the, uh, of the financial shortfall. Now that cost growth is in turn driven by a number of factors. Uh, one is demographic. Uh, the demographic factor is that we have many, many more elderly to support. They're living longer than ever before. Uh, we have the baby boomers all uh, heading into the beneficiary roles right now. And the ratio of beneficiaries relative to the workers who support them with their taxes is rising very dramatically. That's one factor. Uh, you have the factor that you and I discussed previously, which is that um, this is not a funded system. This is a pay-as-you-go system uh, where each generation's benefits are paid by taxing the generation that follows. So the finances of that system are extremely sensitive to changes in the ratio of taxpaying workers to collecting beneficiaries. And then you have the additional factor, which is that benefits since the 1970s have been uh, indexed to grow uh, significantly faster than price inflation. Uh, starting in the 1970s, uh, they changed the benefit formula so that uh, the initial benefit award grows with growth in the national average wage index, which is uh, over the long term generally much, much faster than uh, general price inflation. So you put those three factors together, the, the demographic uh, phenomena, the, the wage indexing that began in the 1970s, and the program's financing method, and you wind up with a situation where the, the, the program costs are, are rising much faster than the uh, underlying economic growth can sustain. Um, now, this is a little bit of a technical issue, but I want to clarify one element you raised, um, the the wage indexing, because uh, the, you're, it's not that each year it's indexed to growth in wages. My understanding is it is indexed to inflation, but as you put it, the initial benefit that you get is indexed to wages. Can you explain to wage growth? Can you explain that in a little bit more detail? Sure, that, and that's a very important clarification because in the press discussion of Social Security, uh, you often see references to different types of indexing and people sometimes get them confused. In fact, uh, I unfortunately sometimes hear even uh, political discussions and roundtables on TV get this wrong and it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, but there's, there's two forms of indexation going on here. The one that I'm not talking about is the one that's more commonly discussed on TV, which is this question of the annual COLA. You know, once, once people uh, start collecting benefits, they get an annual cost of living adjustment or COLA. That is indexed to grow with uh, national growth of uh, consumer prices, consumer price index. Uh, there's a long-running debate about how to best measure the growth of consumer prices in that debate goes back and forth constantly, uh, and, and there's always proposals on the table to reform uh, the calculation of the COLA so that it better captures inflation. Now, that's a whole different thing. That's actually not what I'm talking about. What I'm actually talking about is the formula 
that determines how each succeeding class of beneficiaries has their initial benefit calculated relative to the previous class. So I'm, t I'm talking about the formula that tells you what a retiree in 2014 is going to get relative to what a retiree in 2013 got. And this formula will also cause the beneficiary of 2015 to start out with a higher benefit than the beneficiary of 2014. And that formula grows with something called the uh, average wage index. That's basically uh, the rate of growth of uh, wages uh, by workers as a national average. Now, this is not an original feature of Social Security. This is something that was added in the 1970s. And if it had not been added, we would actually not face a shortfall now. Uh, one of the things that many people don't understand about Social Security is that if the program's benefit formula had been left as it was by FDR, uh, the program actually would not face a, a financing shortfall. Over time, uh, the program's benefits would become more affordable as our economy grows. But instead, what they did is they created um, a new method of indexing benefits in the 1970s that basically uh, causes benefits to grow whenever the earnings of workers grow. So uh, it's like you're chasing your tail. If, if uh, you've uh, got workers being more and more productive, paying higher and higher taxes, uh, or, or right, higher and higher taxes in real terms because their earnings are growing, then the benefits of the beneficiaries are growing proportionally at the same time. When you couple that with the fact that we have a lot more beneficiaries, uh, you have a problem that we can't grow our way out of because of the uh, design of the program. So you've mentioned this idea of generational fairness, and I, I wonder if you could just give us kind of three snapshots, which is, the say, people retiring 10 years, 15 years ago roughly, people currently retiring than people retiring 20 or 30 years into the future. Uh, in terms of on net, how much they're getting from Social Security versus how much they paid during their working years. And it doesn't need to be exact numbers, but just to give people a flavor of what's what's happening to the program over time. Well, let me, um, if, if I could, uh, I might want to pick slightly different birth cohorts just because it's easier to draw them out of my memory. But sure. I'll try to roughly capture uh, what you're asking for. The one thing I can tell you is that people now entering the system stand to lose over 4% of their lifetime wage income uh, to Social Security, uh, the way things are currently constituted. In other words, even if they get every benefit the program is now promising, uh, they would still wind up paying 4% more, or 4% of their income more in taxes than they would get in benefits. The, the program would deliver to them a net lifetime income loss of over 4%. And, and the reason for that is that they are left holding the bag for an excess of benefits promised relative to taxes collected for uh, earlier generations. Uh, and there's, frankly, no way to fix that uh, unless you change the rate of growth of benefits for people who are in the system now, either as you know, late career workers or beneficiaries. Um, because if you just try to, you know, if you have to choose between raising taxes on younger generations and slowing the growth of benefits for younger generations, either way, uh, the younger generations are going to have to pay for that shortfall. So Now, is, uh, is that 4%, um, is that assuming a 12.4% payroll tax, or is that assuming it goes up to that 17% that we're t we talked about? It's sort of assuming it either way. I mean, in other words, like if you assume that they keep paying 12.4% and the system just pays them the benefits they can afford within 12.4%, then their net benefit loss would be, 
you know, over their net income loss would be over 4% of their wages. Um, now, but obviously that would be a rate of benefit growth that is substantially less than what the current system is promising. Now, if they get all the benefits the current system is promising, then you would have to raise their tax contributions up to that 17% level that I mentioned earlier, and then they would lose 4% of their lifetime income for that reason. So no matter whether you do it on the benefit side or the tax side, the net benefit loss for those younger generations is going to be over 4%. Uh, the only way to reduce that net income loss uh, is if you ask earlier generations to have uh, slower benefit growth than is currently on the books. Is that clear? Yeah, that, no, that helps a lot. So uh, I think one of the most um, clarifying parts of your book was in your explanation of the trust fund. Because um, we often hear, well, Social Security is actually in great shape because we have a, a trust fund that can pay out benefits for decades into the future. Uh, it's a complex issue, and I really hope that if people want to understand it fully, they turn to your book. But can you just give us a, a, an overview of what the trust fund is and its political and economic the extent to which it's meaningful politically and economically? Well, that's, it's, it's, these are very well-phrased questions because I think that's a very important distinction. I think the, the trust fund is extremely important politically. And I, I would say, even though I'm certainly a critic of um, trust fund financing in some respects, I, I think one would have to say that trust fund financing has provided some useful uh, discipline within the program. It basically, the idea behind this, this trust fund is that Social Security cannot pay more out in benefits than it has generated in tax revenue. And that's certainly a good foundational principle for Social Security. It's, it's supposed to pay its own way in theory. Now, having said that, uh, and I, by the way, I'd also say politically that's also very, very important because uh, it means that to the extent that the program commands resources in its trust fund to, to the extent that the program has assets in its trust fund, it is very, very difficult for politicians to uh, cut into the growth of Social Security spending because you always have the political argument that, oh, well, this is just the payment uh, of benefits that the participants have already earned. So why would you even think about uh, paying them something less than is currently promised when, when the program currently commands $2.8 trillion worth of assets that hasn't paid out yet. So politically, it's very, very powerful. Uh, but it's important to recognize a couple of very important things about the trust fund. One is the mere act of establishing a separate trust fund uh, in terms of government accounting does not mean that the program is paying for itself. Uh, you could, the government could, you know, they could set up a trust fund for defense and call it the defense trust fund. That, that wouldn't mean that defense isn't costing lots of money or that defense spending doesn't add to the deficit. It would just be sort of a, an accounting uh, device. So the, the creation of a trust fund is really an accounting mechanism and in, in, in and of itself does not tell us anything about the effective program finances. Now, if you want to understand what Social Security's actual impact on the budget is, you have to look at what the program is paying out and compare that to the amount of tax revenues that the program is generating. And to the extent that the program is bringing in enough tax revenues to finance the benefit payments that it makes, uh, it is not adding to the deficit. But to the extent that the program has in its trust fund uh, assets that do not correspond to tax revenues coming in the door, then the program is adding to the deficit. And, and I'll, give you a, I'll give you a classic example of that uh, because it's an easy one to understand. In 2011 and 2012, uh, there was a cut in the Social Security payroll tax enacted. So 
Congress and President Obama made this very deliberate decision to cut the amount of taxes paid by American workers into Social Security. And they made a deliberate decision to finance that payroll tax cut uh, by borrowing the money. They basically ran a, a higher deficit. Uh, they took over $200 billion from uh, general revenues deposited in the, the Social Security Trust Fund. Those general revenues were not reflective of any additional taxes collected um, by deliberate policy design. Um, the, the deficit was run at a time of economic weakness as a sort of a fiscal stimulus measure. Uh, and, and by any understanding of the situation, that amount of money placed in the Social Security Trust Fund was just added to the deficit, and American workers never paid that amount of money. So there is a lot of money sitting in the trust fund, and there's, that's just one example of it, that actually does not represent taxes that anybody paid. So even though Social Security has the right to spend that money, and that is politically very important, uh, the fact that that money is in its trust fund in no way implies that Social Security does not add to the federal budget deficit, which it, which it definitely does. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the most important takeaways that a, a layman needs to know, and, and there's arguments for and against this, but I think it's a pretty clear cut if people read your book, is that what you can't, what you can say about the trust fund is it's not the same as if I set aside resources today by not consuming what I produced so that I can consume them in the future. It's not as if I save for my child's retirement today so that I can pay for it in the future. Um, that it's fundamentally, as you said, an accounting issue, not right. uh, a savings issue. Right, right, and and it's it's so important to understand that because uh, unfortunately, um, political figures have too often pandered to what is often a very um, you know, a, a, a self-serving portrayal of what the trust fund is, and, and they've done it in a way that has harmed the economic interests of younger generations. And in the book, one of the things I do is I present the analogy of uh, you know, a, a, a father who sets up a retirement trust fund for uh, his family. And um, the idea is that everyone's going to put in money into this retirement trust fund for his family. And uh, during the time he's working, the father spends all the money in the retirement trust fund on other things. He takes a vacation or he buys a sailboat or he does what have you. Um, and then when it's time to retire and um, the, the trust fund needs to be basically replenished or, the, or the, you know, every time he takes money out of the trust fund, he, he, he puts a certificate of indebtedness in there indicating the trust fund is going to be paid back. Uh, then when it's time to retire, he says, all right, son, you've got to uh, – you know, you have to make good on all these IOUs that are in the trust fund, um, and it's the right thing to do because, after all, since uh, this the money was borrowed from this trust fund, it's only right to pay the money back. Uh, it's not going to escape the son's notice that the person who spent the trust fund money on himself is not the same person who's being asked to uh, repay the trust fund later on, and that that's sort of what's happening with the Social Security system. You have you have this, uh, these Social Security surpluses that existed for a couple of decades, but which were effectively spent by older generations on other wants of the government. And then later on, now that it's time to redeem the assets in the trust fund, um, younger generations are having to work to redeem those assets. And, you know, there's a certain, I think, misplaced sanctimony of older generations of saying, well, hey, we built up this big 
Social Security Trust Fund surplus, it's only right that the Social Security Trust Fund now, all the debt to it, be honored. Now, of course, it is going to be honored, but basically uh, it's going to be honored through the contributions of younger generations uh, who are not the generations who uh, spent that money earlier. So there's a very important intergenerational transaction going on through the trust fund uh, that is not working to the benefit of younger generations. So we're running short on time, but I definitely want to ask you this question, which is um, we often hear that these social security problems are easy to solve and that it's just going to take some tweaks. Um, one option that is often put out there is we just lift the cap and that so- the cap on taxable wages and that solves all our problems. Is this an easy problem to solve and w- what are some possible solutions? Well, I'm very strongly of the view it's no longer an easy problem to solve. I think it's it has become not only a difficult problem to solve, but almost an insoluble problem. Uh, Let me give you an example. In 1983, we had the the closest we've ever come to a Social Security insolvency or a Social Security crisis. And uh, the program was literally months away from not being able to send out the benefit checks. And it was only through some last-minute heroics, very difficult bipartisan legislating, Um, People on both sides of the aisle wound up having to join hands and embrace a solution that was very tough, politically very difficult to enact. The AARP fought it tooth and nail. It almost didn't happen. And what had to be done in 1983 was they had to uh, delay the COLAs six months. They had to expose uh, benefits to taxation for the first time. They had to bring all the the newly hired federal employees into the system to pay payroll taxes into it. They had to raise the retirement age. They had to um, accelerate a previously enacted increase in the payroll tax. They did all these things that were intensely controversial to keep the system going. Um, A solution, if we were to enact it today, would have to uh, allocate over twice as much political pain as the 1983 reforms did. And that's sort of a high historical watermark for bipartisan cooperation and fixing Social Security. So you have to ask yourself whether you think that Republicans and Democrats today are twice as capable of forging a very difficult bipartisan compromise to save Social Security as we've ever been in our history. Uh, and, And if people on the right are twice as willing to go away from their preferred policy of not raising taxes, and people on the left are twice as willing to go away from their preferred policy of not uh, uh, slowing the growth of benefits. Um, But we're at a point right now where each side has to move over twice as far from their preferred policy as they've ever had to move before. I think it's very questionable that that is going to happen. And each year we delay this, the amount by which each side of the aisle has to move further and further away from what they want to see happen gets bigger and bigger. So I, I see it not as a nip and a tuck problem. I see it as a, as a major problem. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that they say, well, here's what I would do to fix Social Security. And if I were a dictator, I could do this, and this could still be done, which to my mind, is irrelevant. Uh, It doesn't matter whether one specific person can come up with a Social Security solution. What matters is whether the political process can legislate one and get Republicans and Democrats to sign off on it. And there, I think we're in very much in uncharted territory, and I'm very skeptical about it happening uh, with each passing year. My guest today was Charles Blahaus. Charles, thank you for being on the Debt Dialogues. I hope this interview gave you a good overview of Social Security, how it works, and what some of its problems are. The main thing I want to stress is the point that whatever your political views, it's important to be clear and honest about the facts.
so many times people with certain ideological views will twist the facts to suit their case. Those who want to expand Social Security, for instance, will call Social Security payments stingy without acknowledging the fact that until very recently, benefits were huge in relation to the taxes people paid to support the program. Or take the trust fund. Maybe your view is that Social Security is an important program that should be protected from cuts. Okay, fine, you can make that argument. But you can't pretend that there's no need to make cuts because the government has a bunch of resources stocked away, when in fact all it has is promissory notes that have to be paid by taxpayers. We have to face the facts and be honest about those facts. And when it comes to Social Security, some of the facts are this is a program that is tremendously expensive. It's the biggest driver of government spending today. The Social Security payroll tax. It's the highest tax that most people will pay, higher than the income tax. To keep Social Security from going broke without cutting benefits, the payroll tax is going to have to increase by close to 50%. Under the best, rosiest scenarios, young Americans today are going to pay 4% more in Social Security taxes than they will ever receive in benefits. No, these aren't the only facts, and they're not the only important facts. But anyone who doesn't acknowledge them or who twists them in order to suit their agenda has given up any moral or intellectual right to be part of the debate. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.